This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home, leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome on this first day of November to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Recently, I heard a fascinating lecture by a very scholarly gentleman, Dr. Salvatore Mangione. He's an associate professor of medicine from Thomas Jefferson University, and he's board certified in pulmonary disease and critical care medicine. But he also has a very special interest in the history of medicine. Dr. Mangione recently published a paper in the Journal of General Internal Medicine entitled, When Disease Strikes Leaders, What Should We Know? Because diseases of heads of state can affect national policy. And Dr. Mangione has compiled documented cases of illnesses of world leaders and how their medical conditions have changed history. And we'll also talk a little about the 25th Amendment to our Constitution and what it contains. Because currently, there is no system of full disclosure that ensures the public will have access to information about a candidate or an elected official and whether they can discharge the duties of their office. Welcome, Sal. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you today. Oh, my pleasure. Hi, Marianne. And, yeah. So you, you first have fascinating accounts of two glaring examples of leaders' illnesses that changed history and they were due to the neurologic ordeals of President Woodrow Wilson at the end of World War I and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the end of World War II. Tell us, if you would, Sal, about Woodrow Wilson. Yes, uh, and I think uh, one way to start is by saying that both represent a very interesting issue, which is a democracy, like, of course, the U.S., uh, in those Two major events, World War One and World War Two, still had leaders 
whose illness uh, influenced policy and the public really wasn't aware. The reason why I'm saying this is because, of course, we are under the assumption that in a dictatorship situation, this would be routine, but actually happens in democratic systems. So starting with Wilson, Wilson uh, was uh, hypertensive all his life and had had multiple strokes even before World War One. In fact, he had one in 1906 uh, when he was actually only 40. They left him blind in the central portion of the left eye. And then he had more troubles in 1907, 1910, 1913, and throughout the peace conference that ended World War I. The real issue was that as soon as he came home and he was supposed to sell the peace treaty to Congress, he got a big stroke. And that stroke essentially disabled him. And here is where things get murkier because the White House physicians physician covered it up. And basically the country was run for the rest of his term by his wife. And that was really the, the big the big problem because Wilson was unable to push the peace treaty through Congress. And Congress actually didn't even join the League of Nations and America withdrew. And that created a vacuum, and the result is basically World War II. It's Mussolini, Hitler, and Franco. So that is a very important, I think, event, because, first of all, the public was unaware. The physician covered up, and, um, and basically the president was unable to influence policies. And as you say, it certainly changed the history of the Treaty of Versailles, which was in June of 1919 and thereabouts. Yeah, July 1919, mm -hmm. I went on for quite a bit, but definitely influenced America's um, you know, um, undersigning of, uh, of, of the treaty. Uh, Congress rejected it. And, and more importantly, America withdrew. Actually, that was one of the things that Keynes, you know, the famous economist, that said would have been the worst outcome of World War I, America withdrawal. And America did withdraw, and, and, and then we got into another war. Mm -hmm. And that also became a mess because uh, Roosevelt was a sick man, a very sick man. I mean, Roosevelt had polio, but polio wasn't really the issue. And then maybe if we have a chance, time to comment towards the end, you might have a leader who's disabled, but is not incapacitated. The polio of Roosevelt did not influence judgment. What influenced judgment was that he was badly hypertensive during the Yalta peace conference and when basically they decided the organization of the war. His blood pressure was 260 over 150 and he was confused most of the time. And remember, he was dealing with a homicidal psychopath like Joseph Stalin. And you don't want somebody with a blood pressure of 260 over 150 dealing with Stalin. And the result was basically the Cold War. You know, half of Europe ended up under Russia, and, um, and we had 50 years uh, of tension, and 50 years of Eastern Europe eventually finally finding its own independence uh, by itself mm -hmm. through, you know, the movement of Solidarność. So I think for our listeners, when we say hypertensive, this was a strong man uh, in terms of personality, and he was in a wheelchair, but his brain was functioning, and he had a strong personality. But when your blood pressure is 260 over 150, you can develop what we call vascular dementia. The blood is not flowing to the brain, and eventually 
people he he was being described as looking dazed because then his heart and lungs were being affected he smoked incessantly so he had copd our listeners are familiar with that but he also had what we call congestive heart failure he was having episodes of angina and so he didn't have the strength to be the stubborn leader he liked to be and in fact you tell us that he died two months after he had a hypertensive crisis from a massive uh bleed in his brain and and then churchill too he was addicted to tobacco and alcohol and in some places he was described as bipolar yeah churchill probably had bipolar disorder at least people have commented on that he might have had add but the real issue was that he was basically using industrial amounts of alcohol and we know that actually from the diaries of his uh, staff um, and this was throughout the the war and definitely at yalta and Ayalta, in addition to alcohol, he was also on barbiturates. That is not a problem that was exclusive to, to Churchill. In those years, if you wanted to sleep, you took barbiturates. Mm. And then if you wanted to wake up, you took amphetamines. So Churchill was on barbiturates, which he called my reds, because the pills were red. Mm -hmm. And he was on, on amphetamine, you know, like um, we take a, a cup of coffee in the morning, he took amphetamine tablets. And that's definitely not the way you want your leader to be when you are negotiating with somebody like Stalin. So, at least in Europe, really the winner of World War II was Russia. Right. Uh, let's take a little break and come back in just a moment with more from Dr. Salvatore Mangione. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And we're back with Dr. Sal Mangione from Jefferson. So, Sal, we were saying that Churchill took puppy uppers and doggy downers. He took amphetamines to wake up and sedatives to sleep, not unusual at the time. And these were men under great pressure to solve the problems of the world, literally. But he also snuck over to visit Stalin in October of 1944, shared a lot of vodka with him, and created what you told us was the naughty document, where he made a deal and he split Romania, Greece, Yugoslavia, Hungary, the home of 13 Nobel laureates and Bulgaria between East and West. And then he felt guilty about it and he came to Yalta and basically because FDR and he were both limited by their medications and alcohol, Stalin ended up being the winner in Europe. And it also led to the division of Europe, or sorry, Europe, Korea and Vietnam. Yes, and, and of course, you know, the, the Red Army was in the center of Europe. The, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the Allies at that time, mostly the U.S., of course, had a nuclear weapon. So they were, not that, they, that the nuclear weapons should have been detonated, but clearly there were ways to deal with Stalin that um, they did not use. And I'm not actually the only one saying that, of course, William Harriman, who was the American special envoy to Europe for Roosevelt, commented on that. He says, hey, Yalta Roosevelt didn't really have the strength to get what he wanted. Right. Um, so that was a Now, but to get back to this issue of the amphetamines, another person was on tons of amphetamines, and they might have contributed to his early Parkinson's, was actually Adolf Hitler. 
Hitler developed Parkinson. It's very clear now because we have videos of his shaking hand towards the end of the war. And he was on a lot of amphetamines. He had a physician who gave them to him in the morning. It was his way to really wake the Fuhrer up. And they might have definitely contributed to his paranoia and also to his neurologic uh, decline. By the way, Hitler, you know, we are under the impression, took power through a coup d'etat. I think the last survey I, I saw of American millennials, 75% believes that Hitler was democratically elected. That, that's the bottom line. Uh, yes, you're right. I think many people, probably 52% of all adults think that he took power by force, when in fact, as you say, he was elected and then appointed by the then president of Germany, who was an 86-year-old demented leader and just a figurehead. And uh, then he went ahead and rounded up all the opposition and uh, erased them. And then it's also interesting that Anthony Eden took over after Churchill in about 1955, when the issue of Egyptians entering the Suez Canal. And Anthony Eden said, okay, let's get French and British soldiers there. And tell us what President Eisenhower then said. Yeah, he, he definitely uh, did this unilaterally. They, you know, at that time, the British were still convinced that the empire was the empire of uh, Victoria. The reality that it was not. So he had to he, he had to basically accept a humiliating defeat, re, retreat, um, uh, get the troops back. Uh, Eisenhower basically told him to do that, and that was the end of Anthony Eden. But Eden, during that crisis, had bad cholangitis. Um, it was a sequela of a botched gallbladder surgery uh, that gave him recurrent attacks of cholangitis. We're talking about fever to 39 degrees Celsius. We're talking about shaking chills. So he was, during that crisis, also on barbiturates, amphetamines, and antibiotics. And uh, his own staff commented that he was unable to really function. Which brings us back what, to the big issue, which is what do you do if you know that your leader is unable to function in order to remove him? Right. Or remove her? Yes. So here's a man who's healthy and young. He has routine gallbladder surgery, and the wrong duct was uh, cut and an artery bled and it left him with chronic infection for almost two years and he was making decisions with those uh, limitations. But the most dramatic story of all that you summarize so beautifully is President Kennedy. 60 years ago, we saw the rise of a handsome young man. People were taken by his youth and vigor and handsome uh, appearance. And he won the presidency in 1960, but tell us, he was probably the sickest president of all. Yes, Kennedy was definitely on the largest pharmacopoeia ever. Uh, we're talking about all the medications he was on. So Kennedy has Schmidt syndrome, which is uh, some sort of familiar degeneration of various endocrine glands. Um, so you had uh, uh, adrenal disease, which we call Addison's. That is life-threatening, and in fact, by the time he got elected, he had already received last rites four times. Mm -hmm. The fifth time will be, will be at Dallas. And then also had thyroid disease as a result of the Schmidt syndrome. Curiously enough, one of his sisters also had that, so it's familiar. And then in addition to that, he was on testosterone, uh, 
He was on corticosteroids, and he was on this unique cocktail that was given to him by a New York physician that ultimately lost his license that contained um, amphetamines and barbiturates and, and corticosteroids. Um, there is a story that his brother, Bobby, had it analyzed and ran into the Oval Office and says, Jack, you have no idea what you're taking. And the president answered back, I don't care if it's horse piss. It works. Yeah. Well, so, for our listeners, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I was just saying for our listeners, Addison's disease means that your body doesn't make enough natural steroids that you need when you're confronted with the stress of a sickness or, or a life situation. So the person could have fatigue, dizziness, a high potassium that can affect your heartbeat. And if it's really severe, your blood pressure drops dangerously low. You can go into stupor or coma. So he had rheumatic fever at age two. He had multiple colds. His, he went into the Navy, and that was difficult for him. And then he had back surgery. Remember, he was planting a tree, and he hurt his back. He, all, all together, he had 36 hospitalizations, as you said, last rites five times. He was on a multitude of drugs. And ultimately, when he sat down with Khrushchev in 1961, Khrushchev said he's a lightweight because he wasn't feeling well, and that led to the Berlin Wall and missiles in Cuba. Am I right? So Berlin Wall goes up within two months mm -hmm. from that meeting, and Kennedy gets out of the meeting saying, it beat the hell out of me. So Khrushchev misjudged him, um, and, and Kennedy was on barbiturates because of the back strain during that conference, so he was dazed. And then within seven months, he sends missiles to Cuba, so we got very close to disaster, and of course, Kennedy handled it very well, but still, uh, we had no idea. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, when you look back and they replay that so sad video of President Kennedy in the open convertible, and part of the reason why he died was because he had a back brace on that was keeping him upright. So with the first shot, had he fallen over, that first shot probably wasn't fatal, but because he was still upright... Yeah, no Am I right? The first shot was the first shot was not fatal. Right. It had gone through his layering, mm -hmm. but the other one definitely got him in the head. He yeah. could not duck. Yeah. That's true. And then the That's other. True. But remember, he ran he ran on a campaign of vigor and youth. Yeah. And he claimed that he was the healthiest candidate to the presidency, which is exactly actually what years later Paul Songas claimed, even though he had a lymphoma that eventually killed him before uh, the end of his uh, presidency, if he had been elected. So it's not only an issue of sitting presidents, it's an issue of candidates, it's an issue of transparency. Sure. Well, for our listeners, Paul Songus, to refresh everyone, ran in the presidential election against Bill Clinton in 1992, and you reviewed with us in your lecture that was outstanding that he claimed he was cured of a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that he had had years before, and doctors confirmed that, but he he knew he had had a relapse five years before this um, campaign, and that he had another relapse two weeks after the election. So tell us about the end of that story, if you would. Well, once again, there, what is disturbing to us uh, is that the physicians lied. So these were physicians from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. They were asked by journalists, is he a cure? And they said yes, when in reality they knew he had had a relapse, so he was not a cure. And eventually, actually, they apologized. So that brings up a very interesting conundrum. As physicians, what's our primary responsibility? We are responsible for not 
basically uh, spreading information about our patients. But in this kind of situation, should we, when the patient may influence the lives of millions? Sure. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. We're here with Dr. Sal Mangione discussing the fascinating history of medical issues in world leaders. So, Sal, we're saying that for physicians, we're in a difficult position because we take the oath of Hippocrates that protects the privacy of every patient. The dilemma occurs when a physician is taking care of a world leader and has to protect all members of society. That's part of our oath as well. And it happens in cases with us. If we know about a case of child abuse or somebody has tuberculosis, we have to tell their their family members and their contacts. Or if we have to report conditions that affect people like airline pilots or military personnel whose actions and uh, fitness can affect thousands, even millions of people. So tell us there are two types of illness the public should know about. Yes, for sure. I think uh, we should know if the illness is affecting judgment, clouding judgment, because, of course, they have to make important decisions. And the other one, of course, if it can threaten the life. And a good example, of course, was Paul Songas, who ended up dying if he had been elected towards at the end of his first term, he would have been dead. And that brings us to the third issue that probably we should know, when it's a distraction. So recently, the Japanese prime minister stepped down for a disease like ulcerative colitis that does not threaten life, does not cloud judgment, but clearly it's a distraction, and he had to take care of it. Mm -hmm. And he decided that, that that would have taken too much of his time for him to do a good job, and he stepped down. And I'm, if I'm so right, I these I'm, are the three. I'm sorry, uh, Sal, but just for the listeners, if they don't know, he has a condition called ulcerative colitis, which, as you mentioned, is not life-threatening, and it doesn't cloud his judgment, but it could be pretty hard to function if uh, your belly's not uh, cooperating, yes? Right. And that definitely is a distraction. Mm -hmm. So so I think these are, and again, I'm not here to suggest what needs to be known and what doesn't need to be known. I'm suggesting, as we'll say at the end, that what we need is a national conversation that can finally solve this issue, because clearly the experience of the past is that it's a problem. But again, those three conditions to me are the ones where we should know. The Mm -hmm. rest, probably not. Well, you also mentioned other people or other leaders who had conditions that did not incapacitate them. You were going to talk about Lincoln and FDR. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a very important one because, for example, Kennedy uh, was elected with a margin of 100,000 votes, razor thin margin. I have absolutely no doubt if the public had known how sick he was, he would not have been elected. Having said that, I've been all over the world, and I always found that Kennedy Plaza, Kennedy Boulevard. So the man clearly touched our imagination, and he put us on the moon. Um, Now, you can argue, of course, about the policies of Kennedy and so many other issues, but 
we would have missed somebody like him. We definitely would have probably missed Lincoln, who was depressed all his life, often with suicidal ideations. If the public had known about that, would they, they elected him? And I don't think and Roosevelt was. I'm oh, sorry, Roosevelt I... was crippled by polio. Yeah, yeah, yes. And as you said earlier, I, I wonder if they put the blanket over his legs to distract people from thinking about that, so he would appear strong. But with Lincoln, how many people ever heard before that he had suicidal thoughts? And uh, and you also outlined that LBJ, President Johnson, had a heart attack at the young age of 47. Yes, and ultimately will die of heart disease. So, again, um, that's where it gets fuzzy. So it's easy to talk about what happened in the past, but for the future, I think uh, things are a little gray. They're not black and white. Mm -hmm. And that's why what I really think is that we need to discuss it and come up with something better than the 25th Amendment, Mm -hmm. which is not a good solution. Well, I know that you did point out cases that were a little bit more obvious of people who were disabled, like Pope John Paul II, who was a brilliant leader and so well-loved, but his Parkinson's really did disable him. Ronald Reagan was such a magnetic leader and charismatic, but he had dementia. We learn now that for the final few months that his aides were signing his documents, which is really unsettling to hear. So we go back to talking about the 25th Amendment that's been in the news lately, and that the president, in writing, tells the Speaker of the House and the President uh, pro tempore of the Senate that he's unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office and the transition of powers to the Vice President. So, But as you say, we need a national conversation because it doesn't account for every situation that could be out there other than medical problems. But it, But we need to know because it can compromise yes. it can compromise national security uh national policy policy and destabilize yes. a country the, mm-hmm. the 25th amendment is even more complicated because basically it has to be initiated either by the president and you can imagine if somebody who has power is going to give it up easily or by the vice president those are the two they have to initiate it. True. The vice president then gets together with eight cabinet members, and it's a little fuzzy there, but basically boils down to eight cabinet members, writes a letter to the Speaker of the House and the Senate leader, and that letter automatically transfers powers from the president to the vice president. And the only proviso of that is that the president is unable, is unfit, and unable to discharge the powers and the duties of the office. Mm-hmm. That's the statement. Well, it's, it's not a medical diagnosis. Exactly. It could be policy mm-hmm. disagreement. Yeah. So it's very bizarre. It's very bizarre. So I guess the the, the danger of full disclosure, Sal, is that could it, it could work against somebody in power because there are certain people like anti-Julius Caesar that, that uh, get together and decide to... Uh, uh, dethrone somebody who's not not doing anything uh, harmful. But- Correct. So, so the 25th leaves things very open. But as far as the medical issues, a lot of people, and I'm talking about not only Zonkas when he apologized to the American public, but also President Carter when the news of Donald, Ronald Reagan dementia became public. Carter wrote an editorial in JAMA saying we need something different from yeah. the 25th. So as you bring up, Sal, it's so important to find a balance, uh, share with the public 
what they need to know, but also protect the leader in place. But one of the pluses of a leader experiencing illness is that it should increase his empathy. And I love your example of President Kennedy in his speech when he said, we all breathe the same air, we all cherish our children's future, and we're all mortal. Well, you hope that they get some wisdom out of this, although, again, Kennedy, uh, we don't know how much he had learned, but clearly being sick, I think, teaches you something. And I'm using the experience of physicians, actually. There's no doubt that as a physician, after you've been sick and you have seen uh, the medical industrial complex from the other side of the fence, that you have a, a different approach towards patients, at least in my case. I, I mean, I, I've had some, some issues. There is no doubt that it did something to the way I see it. So I suspect that from that standpoint, you're right. It could theoretically be a benefit if their judgment is clear. Well, I want to give you a special thank you, Sal, because you're so busy with your practice and all your lectures. And if people wanted to read your article, where would they find it? Oh, if they put uh, my name and the title is When Disease Strikes the Leader, What Should We Know? Uh, they'll find it on, uh, on Google. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's accessible directly. Yeah. Well, thank you once again, Sal, for joining us. It was wonderful to have you. Okay, my pleasure. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And welcome back to today's final segment of Your Radio Doctor. And as we close today, I'd like to share some very important news. On several occasions, I've discussed the importance of screening for colon cancer. It's very common and probably the most preventable of the life-threatening cancers. Let's put it this way. Mammograms detect early cancer. Low-level radiation CAT scans look for early lung cancer. But colonoscopy finds and removes precancer. Isn't that fantastic? Put another way, one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer, one in three people over 50, and one in two people over 60 will get colon polyps. Not all polyps become cancer, but all colon cancers begin as a polyp. In fact, more people die of colon cancer than from breast cancer. But it's not a contest. All these screenings are important. Recently, the beloved film actor Chadwick Boseman, the star who played Jackie Robinson, James Brown, Black Panther, was only 43 when he lost his battle with colon cancer. Know that African Americans are 20% more likely to be diagnosed with colon cancer and 40% more likely to die from it. And emerging data show a notable rise in colon cancer in people under age 40. For these reasons, in 2018, the American Cancer Society lowered the recommended age to start screening for colon cancer from 50 to age 45 for people of average risk. Here's the great news. Just this week, another major organization also lowered the screening age to 45. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. It's a panel of national experts in disease prevention. If their initial recommendation is finalized, then under current law, screening services for colon cancer would be covered by most private insurance plans with no copay for patients ages 45 to 75, and it could save thousands of lives. When COVID came to the U.S., so many elective exams were put on hold. 
The American Cancer Society estimates that between March and early June of this year, up to 18,000 cases of colon cancer were missed or delayed. So how can your radio doctor help? Well, you've heard my advice to women in the audience before. Women are the nurturers in the family. We often take care of everyone else before ourselves. So treat yourself like a diva. Take care of yourself or no one else will. Years ago, I started a program at Jefferson, which I trademarked, called Pink Plus. Your care is more than just a mammogram. All screenings are important. So come to Jefferson on November 12th. You can have a mammogram and a colon cancer screening visit, or you can have a gynecology exam and then a mammogram and a colon cancer screening visit. That's two or three screenings in one visit. Why does that make sense? Because women already take time for their gynecology exams and mammograms. They feel fine, we can delay the colon screening. They think colon cancer is a man's disease, partly because the pink campaigns, which are great, indirectly make women think mammogram and done. And women are more likely to go to doctor visits, but less likely to have colon cancer screening. And bundled screenings increase adherence to all screenings. And the risk for gynecology cancers are related to risk for colon cancer. So divas, before another day passes, schedule all your screenings, including that for colon cancer. It could save your life. And now for your real champion, Rose Kane. I call this segment Running with Rose. Rose Kane considers herself very fortunate. She married the love of her life. Her husband Kevin was that guy in the neighborhood, the Pied Piper. Everybody of every age loved him. And when Rose's brother Billy developed ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, Kevin helped establish the first annual Billy Lake Basketball Marathon to raise money for ALS research. It's now the longest consecutive family-run ALS event in the country, 29 years. Well, Kevin faced his own challenging diagnosis when at age 24 he was treated for testicular cancer. Fortunately, they were blessed with two children. He tackled the treatment and returned to work, still finding time to coach basketball and baseball at St. Andrew's grade school, along with basketball and baseball at Archbishop Prendergast High School for Girls, both in Drexel Hill. He even started a summer basketball league for girls of all ages that lasted 25 years. Rose, in the meantime, was busy managing one of the largest restaurants in the area when Kevin had to undergo open heart surgery to replace a heart valve at age 48. The recovery wasn't as smooth as expected. His lungs continued to fill with fluid. They finally realized it was lung cancer. Rose helped him power through those four years of treatment, and Kevin continued his usual activities, even from a wheelchair after suffering a stroke. Ever the coach. One day, just a few weeks before the end, Rose answered the plea of the little girls who wanted to visit their coach, whom they all missed so much. They filled her living room and waited more than an hour until he returned home from a doctor visit. Rose and Kevin were exhausted, but she made that moment happen for Kevin and his band of admirers. She still has a note from one little girl that says, you'll be missed. And when Rose lost her dear Kevin, she could have turned inward and shut down, but instead, every time she went out the door, she'd see some of the children he coached, some running on her street, and the light went on. Why not do a run to raise money for families struggling through a cancer diagnosis? And the Kevin Kane Memorial Foundation was born. With the help of Matt Hayes, track coach from Annunciation School in her neighborhood, 
Rose began an annual Make My Day event, a non-timed 5K walk and run. Since 2006, the Kevin Kane Memorial Foundation has helped thousands of families in the Delaware County and surrounding communities who were overwhelmed financially while traveling on their journey to wellness from cancer, and for those with a less promising future, to spend their final days making beautiful memories. Rose doesn't look for limelight. She credits the team for helping a family meet a mortgage payment, cover an electric bill, dinners, baskets with personal items, gift cards to buy Christmas gifts, maybe a trip to Disney World or a preseason baseball game in Clearwater. She turned her own grief into a mission that brings joy where there's sadness and comfort where there's pain. Along with helping individual families, she's also brought an entire community together. The spirit of helping in Havertown is palpable. Well over a thousand people join the walk each year, all sporting the same bright Kevin Kane t-shirt. One woman drives up from Washington, D.C. each year just to buy a t-shirt and give a donation. Even with social distancing, hand sanitizer, and masks, this year was a banner year for fundraising. Rose likes to do things for people and make them happy. She wants them to focus on making their patient better. And she's grateful for the love and support of her own family and understands the value of a helping hand. Rose recalls each day she watched her own dear Kevin fight his battle. And there were times when it was hard to make ends meet. And he would say, I don't need all those meds. Don't spend the money. Rhodes would say, don't you worry, we'll make it happen. And for thousands of people, she has kept that promise. We salute you, Rose Lake Kane. You're a real champion. Thanks again for listening. As we enter November and prepare for Thanksgiving, we're grateful if we're free of COVID and our jobs are secure. And remember, it's a good time to reach out and share with someone who's not so fortunate. So many have been sick or lost loved ones, or their businesses. And I'd really like to hear from you. Tell us about a champion in your family, workplace, or community who takes the time to help others. Send us your stories of champions to info at yourradiodoctor.com. Send us questions that we can answer next week when we talk about cancer of the pancreas. Or tell us a topic you'd like to hear about. All comments to info at yourradiodoctor.com. You can listen to any of our shows on website WPHT 1210 or your Please get your flu shot. No time to waste and don't delay your regular checkups. Now pour a second cup of coffee and keep it here on WPHT to enjoy Sid Mark and the sounds of Sinatra. And always remember your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.